Seth Davis joined us on the Sport and the Growing Good podcast. Seth is a writer and reporter, well-known writer and reporter. He's written an excellent book on John Wooden and also a great book called Getting to Us about some great coaches at the college level across different sports, also some professional coaches. Seth is known for his work with CBS Sports also as a college basketball reporter and also as a writer, reporter, and editor at The Athletic. So among writers and people in the media in college sports, especially in basketball, Seth is one of the most respected names and he shared some really good insights with us on some of the coaches he's learned from over the years. I just wanted to share one aspect of Seth's conversation that really stood out to me and that related to the generosity that coaches show toward each other and the way that they support each other, even those who may be considered their biggest rivals. He discussed several coaches in his book called Getting to Us who were very much committed to helping others, especially Coach Tom Izzo. He talked about also Coach Mike Shashevsky from Duke and several others who make it a real purposeful part of the work to be present to other coaches who they don't even work with. Seth also talked about the similar dynamic in his own profession and shared some great stories about people who have helped him over the years, even though they didn't need to, and he may have even been considered a rival to them. The big takeaway I got from that conversation, and I think that Seth shared in his writing of the book, Getting to Us, is that you don't get to the top and you don't get even to a variety of positions in coaching or in sports without the help of others. And that those who try to kind of go it alone and try to cut others down on the way up usually end up paying the price and not getting to where they would like to get. So not only is it kind of the right thing to do to help others, but it's also a strategically smart thing to do to help others in your profession along the way. So thank you so much, Seth. Seth has been very generous to us at Wisconsin over the years. We've used his books to learn about coaching and he's always just been a tremendous asset to us as someone to learn from. And he, in the discussion of being generous, he walks the walk. He is always very happy to join us, even though he's so busy and has so many things going. So just want to thank Seth once again for his time with us on Sport and the Growing Good. Yeah, you know, Peter, it's like, I think what struck me as you asked that question is just the the similarity and consistency with coaching at all levels. Like, I don't think um, the interactions and the priorities and the dynamics between a high school basketball coach in New Haven, Connecticut is anything different than when I see with a Tom Izzo or Mike Krzyzewski or a Dabo Sweeney and any of those guys. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's about that trust. And, and do you really 
and truly care for this other person. Um, and you can't fake that. Like if you only care for somebody because of what they do for you, then you don't really care for them. You know, that's, that's not the, 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 the definition of caring. It's not the definition of love. I, you know, there's a basket, there was a basketball coach named Gary Palladino. I mean, I haven't probably said his name out loud in many years. I certainly talked to him in a long time. Uh, he coached at Notre Dame at West Haven. Um, he, he, he I, I love the dynamic between him and his players. And he had a basket, he had a point guard named Ron Iannotti. So two, you know, two Paisans. And they had, I don't know if they had lost a game or got knocked out of the tournament or something, but, um, you know, I saw him in the locker room where he, where the coach hugged him. It was definitely after a loss. I don't know if it ended their season or not. And I haven't thought about this in such a long time. And, and they hugged and Gary said to him, I love you. And the kid was walking out. He looked back and he said, I love you. I love you too. And I thought that was really, really cool. Gary also said something great about basketball. He said, basketball is 70% talent, 20% coaching, and 10% luck. <laughs> and I still have not heard anybody uh, describe that better. That's a great metaphor for life. 70% talent, 20% coaching, 10% luck. Sounds about right. So, um, yeah, that, that dynamic is, is very much the same. And, you know, covering high school sports, and frankly, I see this now as a father with kids who play club soccer, you see a lot of bad coaching. Um, and when I talk about bad coaching, I am almost never talking about X's and O's strategic. Like I always talk about with, with my boys, like the coaches are coaching my boys, the number one word I talk about is demeanor. What is their demeanor? How are they talking to their players? How are they talking to my sons? You can be energetic. Like my, my son had one soccer coach, one of our prior soccer coaches, who was a bit of a nutcase with his hyperactivity. And he got tossed out of a game one time, which I didn't like. And he was very vocal in practices, but he, he's the best coach I think that we've had and ran the best practice we had because he was never demeaning. It was always, it was positive. It was demanding. It was accountable, but he did it in a way that the kids wanted to play from. They wanted to hear the volume increase. Whereas other coaches that we've had, um, it was always like, if you if you make a mistake, I'm taking you out. Well, how are you going to talk up to that a 10-year-old kid, a 14-year-old kid, a 17-year-old kid? They can't be out there afraid to make mistakes. That's the surest way to make mistakes. So I have seen that, Peter, uh, go into effect at every level that I've seen. And so I think that's the beauty um, you know, for your students to know that, you know, wherever you're coaching, it's all about that relationship and you can't fake it. That's the authenticity piece. If you truly care about that player in all ways that even if it might go against your own personal interest, but if you truly care about that player, that player will play hard for you and, and will trust that the things that you're asking him or her to do are to the, his or her benefit, as well as to the team's benefit and therefore to the coach's benefit. Speaking of your boys, you have a perspective as a parent, but even having, I, I believe you've coached them when they were real young. Is that correct? And yeah, a little bit in soccer. And, and soccer. Uh, I think two of them I coached. You, you shared a bit about what, you know, this idea of demeanor in the relationship. I know it's kind of low level just for fun stuff, but were there, was there any jolts you had as a coach um, in those early stages of what you experienced as challenging as a coach? Um. You know, I mean, I coached them when they were real young in soccer. So, like, we actually joke about it because, uh, you know, I don't really know much about soccer. I know you can't use your hands unless you're the goalie. That was very <laughs> important. So, you know, one of the things that 
I saw like with these little kids and these were like really super young kids without really without goalies. Um, and so they would be like on defense and they would dribble the ball right in front of their own goal. And then, so all the other team had to do was come away and put a foot on the ball and they could score that way. So that was my big mantra with them was out of the middle, out of the middle, out of the middle. Um, we would practice, you know, I, I noticed that, you know, the, the young boys, young soccer players would kind of scrum around the ball and just kind of flail at the ball. Whereas I felt like if you saw a crowd, if you ran through the ball, then you could take the ball away from the entire crowd. It was a better way to possess the ball. So we would practice things like that. We would practice. I noticed if they fall down, they're taking too long to get up. So we would do these little drills where I'd fall, roll and get right back up. So um, it was very cool sort of picking out the things. Um, I did sort of appreciate that, you know, kids need to be playing. So in your practice situation, you know, I would try to break down the skills of the game, you know, individually, but it could get boring real fast. It, it, it's it's got to be a really good training ground to um, work with really young kids because their attention span is so small and you can't get mad at them for not paying better attention. It's your job as the coach to make them want to pay uh, attention. So, you know, things like that. I mean, one of my real, I don't necessarily say regret, but disappointments, I guess, is, you know, the one thing that I could be a pretty good coach at is, is basketball. That's one sport that I really know. And so I've seen them playing basketball games where I just shake my head at what these dad parents are doing um, and how they're coaching their team. And I, I know I could coach, you know, coach, I know the game better than them. <laughs> Uh, but because I'm so busy during basketball season, I can't, I can't do that. And now they're old enough where they don't want their dad, um, coaching them anyway. So I, I wish I had more, uh, experience coaching my guys. You know, the, the other coaching experience I, I had, we may have talked about this is did I tell you about my USA basketball experience, the fantasy camp that I did a couple of I think you did briefly last time we, t- we spoke, but yeah, I, to hear it again. I, 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 I wrote a story about that. You should yeah. see it. Um, I was asked to be part of the USA basketball fantasy camp for these, you know, well, well-to-do older men. Uh, you know, you pay a few thousand bucks and you get coached by Matt Painter or PJ Carlissimo or Jay Billis. Um, they were all there. And for whatever reason, they must have been low on qualified coaches because they asked me to, to take one of them. I mean, I think they were literally low. They, they needed a, a, someone. And so the guy said, hey, would you mention doing this? I'm like, stay in Vegas at the win? Like, absolutely. It sounds like a lot of fun. And I really, really wanted to, to win. Now, the other coaches who were there, like Gino Oriema was one of them. Like, you know, they're just there hanging out, having fun. They do this thing all the time. What do they care? Like, I'm like, I'm going to be Gino. I'm a, one time in my life, I'm going to coach against Gino. I want to win that game. Uh, and I did. And the reason why I did is because I was locked in for the draft. Like, I knew that it was all about your, your player. Like, how much coaching can you even do in that setting if you do know what you're talking about? So I... I actually reached out to the UNLV head coach at the time, Marvin Menzies. He had an assistant. He led to me because I'm like, I don't really know my basketball technical stuff. And so this guy helped me. We really locked in. And then they assigned me John Thompson III as my co-coach. And he was very deferential to me, which I appreciated. Um, but I really, during the, during the tryouts, me and this other assistant, like we evaluated every single guy. So every coach went in. Miles Simon was in there. They went in there knowing a few guys that wanted to coach. I had something on every single player, which I rated as a one, a two, or a three. And then I also knew that at the end of the day, it was all about just physically being in good shape. So younger, you know, guys that looked like they were in good shape and could handle it. And we ended up winning the, the gold medal. We won the, 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 the tournament. I got 
It's actually right here. Hold on. This is team champion, and somewhere is a coach. Oh, and here's coach of the year. How about this? Coach <laughs> How about this? How about this? This is the team championship. And this Forget is- about those journalism awards. Or no whatever. way. This is it, man. Coach of the camp. And he- here's the best part. And this is this is good for your for, for your students. Um, I was a little bit, and rightfully so. I don't know if insecure is the right word, but concerned like these guys, I feel bad for these guys. Like they're paying all this money and they're getting me as their coach when they could have Gino or whatever. But I told them in, in, in the, the first meeting with them, like, I really want to win this. Like these guys aren't here. Like I came here to win. This is important to me. And they loved that. There was not an ounce of, well, you're just a writer or they knew I knew a little ball and I coached them in a way where I didn't try to give them too much schematically. We sort of talked about what we should do, but you know, I knew that that wasn't um, that no. In fact, I remember seeing like Matt Painter was like trying to teach his guys off like their one practice. We had one practice. I just wanted these guys to shoot as much as possible and get used to the gym. Matt Painter's like running, giving them sets to run and whatever. And 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 his guys weren't going to be able to to do that. So the great thing is, I had one hundred, and I mean one hundred percent buy-in from my guys. They loved that I cared so much. And they picked up on that and we ran with it. And it was a really, really neat experience. Even at that kind of setting, that uh, commitment and buy-in, you know, is, goes a long way. They knew I cared and, yeah. and they wanted to win too, you know? And so they knew I cared. They didn't care that I was the writer guy. They, they knew that I wanted to win. You've written so much and I have a lot to ask you, but a, a couple of things uh, that jumped out at me um, from the getting to us book each of those, each of those coaches is just prolific in their out in their outcomes and everything they've done. But one thing that struck me was the discussion that you had throughout some of their chapters about how they supported each other, how they, how they support other coaches in the profession. We've spoken a lot in it with our coaches about coaches supporting members of their own staffs. So like a head coach supporting assistant coach, and giving opportunities for different people on a staff to, to flourish, but less about the networks that coaches have almost with their competitors. And I wanted to ask you about that dynamic, which on one hand, they're, they're like rivals are, you know, they're combating against each other, but on the other hand, they're uniquely positioned to understand each other. You mentioned Tom Izzo a lot, what took a lot on in that regard in terms of saw that as a really serious responsibility have you thought much about that dynamic of both being a support to others in the profession, but also, you know, conscious of, look, this is the guy I'm, my I'm trying to beat. Yeah. Well, it it actually, uh, it comes more into play, I think in recruiting. Right. So I, I think that there is a lot more collegiality amongst coaches in basketball as opposed to football because of the recruiting scene in basketball, there's a big summer, obviously non pandemic, but there's a big summer scene. So, you know, you go to these tournaments at, in Augusta, Georgia or Las Vegas or Atlanta or whatever, Los Angeles, wherever it is, you have all the players on the court and then all the coaches are in the bleachers and they're all hanging out. So you might see two guys who are there. I mean, they're there to watch the same kids. So they know they're recruiting the same kids. So, um, but, you know, I, I think that, First of all, there's definite peer pressure when you've made it to give back and and do clinics. Um, I remember like when I um, 
did my John Wooden book, there was, there was a quote from him in there where, you know, one of the burdens of when he started winning, cause he's, he was never one of the boys, you know? Um, but he had to spend time and he never liked to be away from his family. That's why he turned down the NBA so often um, that it was hard for him that he had to be flying around the country to do coaching clinics. But he's, I think his exact quote was, if you don't do it, they say you're high hat, right? Like you're getting a, a, too big for your britches. So, and I think a lot of them enjoy that. I mean, you know, they, they were all that guy. I mean, all of us, it's kind of, you know, why I like doing stuff like this. I mean, we're all that guy. We were all that student in college wondering, you know, I want to get to that point. How do I get there? So, um, you know, people were generous with me and their time. And so I try to be generous and I think they all feel the same way. I mean, there's a real, real comrade with coaches. I mean, those, those poor people, I mean, they're all insane, you know, and they work so hard and they suffer. And it's like, your whole livelihood depends on some 17 year old kid. Does he want to come here? Or does he want to go there? Well, why did he, you know, why did he choose that school over this one? Who knows? Who knows who's in his ear? And it's like your whole livelihood, your whole life is at stake. Um, and it's really, really hard. And you grind and you watch tape and video and you scouting report and you plot because they're, they're so competitive by nature. They're putting all this energy and then you have the game and you lose. And it's like, oh, it's really, really hard. So I think there's a real, collegiality and there's a brotherhood uh, amongst coaches that they know things that someone like me just I just can't know that I mean I can write about it and we can talk about it but I can't know it because I don't live it that was Jim Beheim's uh, quote in his chapter was it's all about the losing like they feel the losses so much more than they than they feel the wins so you know at the end of the day um, they share information they help each other out you know yes there are feuds yes there are guys who don't necessarily like each other but Generally speaking, I think they, they, they think of themselves as being part of a really cool fraternity. And the ones who have really made it big, I think, are humble enough and smart enough to know that there's a lot of luck involved, that but for the grace of God, it wouldn't have happened. Someone, someone giving them a break, someone taking time for them. And so I think they like helping out um, other, other guys and, and, and women um, so they can have that same experience. As I was reading some of those stories, um, I was wondering if maybe this isn't unique to coaching in that, and there are other professions where the similar dynamic is at play. And I was, I was even thinking of your own trajectory as you're in a, an industry that's very competitive and there's finite spots for people at the, at the high levels or the most kind of prominent spaces. Have you experienced this, a similar dynamic at all? Have there been certain people who on one hand could be, construed as like someone that you're both trying to kind of get the same thing, but on the other hand, they uniquely are positioned to support you. Well, of course, not only are we competing for jobs, but we're competing for scoops. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an interesting dynamic. I mean, I don't consider myself a big scoop guy. I mean, I guess I get my fair share, but I'm not, it's not like someone like John Rothstein um, who just chases it all the time. I mean, that's his thing. And he's very hard to like, if you beat Rothstein on a story, you know, you've done something, you know, so, um, but by the same token, I work with John on the air at CBS. So we're partners and, um, you know, all these guys and it's a small, you know, whatever business you're in, whether it's coaching, finance, medicine, whatever it is, you find that it's a small community. That's why I always say you better be nice to everybody, like treat everybody well all the time. Cause you don't know where they're going to be, you know, that person that you're not nice to, cause you think that they're beneath you and you rub the wrong way in 10 years might be in a position to hire you. 
Um, and they're going to remember how you treated them when they were, you know, just coming up. Um, like they say, the same people you see on the way up, you're going to see them on the way down. So, um, you know, there are people who are not as good at it, frankly, and there are people who are really, really good at it. I've uh, told the story before about a, a guy named Armin Katayan, who's uh, really one of the most successful sports journalists of all time and certainly of, of this era, very similar to me, came through the print world, came through Sports Illustrated, much more of an investigative guy than necessarily a beat or a features guy, great investigative reporter, went to CBS for many years, worked as a sideline reporter on the Super Bowl and the Final Four and at the very, very highest level, has written many, many books, um, worked for The Athletic for a time. So I tell this story, Peter, um, in a picture, I'm, I'm at Sports Illustrated, I'm on the college basketball beat, and I'm starting to do some TV at, at the old network called CNNSI and uh, had, had gotten an agent who was helping me out, trying to um, help me network. And uh, he had gotten my tape to the then executive uh, producer of CBS Sports, a guy named Terry Ewert. So I know that he had seen the tape or they had had some conversation and talked about maybe talking to me. And he said he liked what he what he saw, but there you know, wasn't really a whole lot of progress in, in that regard. And I'd known Armin because of his previous work at Sports Illustrated. He'd worked a lot, written a book with Alex Wolf, who is one of my great mentors. So I'm at the Final Four, and we're at the, the open practice the day before the semifinal. And I'm looking over at the, at the scores table at midcourt, and Jim Nance is, is there kind of doing his pregame prep. And he's sitting next to who I believe is that executive producer for CBS Sports, Terry Ewer. But I'd never met him. I was pretty sure that was him. And I'm standing with Armin kind of off to the side. And I said to him, is that Terry Ewert over there? And Armin says to me, yes, it is. And that's absolutely something. I don't even know if he knew that Terry had seen my tape, but he said, that's absolutely somebody you should know. Now, Armin Katayan could have, and frankly should have looked at me and, and seen me as a threat. I'm another writer trying to get on TV, coming through Sports Illustrated on college basketball. I mean, if someone's going to be gunning for Armin's job, it would have been Seth Davis. He didn't bat an eyelash. That's absolutely somebody that you should meet. He walks me over to Terry Ewart. Terry, this is Seth Davies. He's a great reporter at, at uh, Sports Illustrated. He covers college basketball. And he walked away. So he brings me over to Terry Ewart, and he walked away. And it was just one of the most gracious things. And Armin and I, are, and I repeat that story to him all the time. We're still very close friends. Uh, he mentors me on, on many levels to this day, and I try to help him out any way that I can. And then I also try to pay it forward. So uh, in Yiddish, the word is a mensch. That's being a mensch. And it, it doesn't hurt to be a mensch. It's actually good for your business to be a mensch. So be a mensch. Part of your perspective from the high school level, the college, the pros, everything is you, you've seen the importance of context. And with a lot of our coaches, we go through this um, notion of discernment, meaning who am I as a person? What am I good at? What do I love? What do I want to do? But then also, how do how do I intersect with different settings? And some of us may be just as good as others, you know, as a coach in terms of what we have to offer, but are called more to a, like a high school setting because of what we care about and maybe our particular skill set. Others may be more suited to like a um, you know college or professional setting. Um, I know you've been asked so much about the commonalities you see among the coaches you've studied, but this question's a little bit different. I'm wondering about what you've learned about fit. Of course, Brad Stevens jumps out and that he went, he, ch he changed settings.
But have you learned other things about that, about in the discernment process, what should we be thinking about with regard to fit and setting? In one word, happiness. And this is a very salient question because I just did a story uh, at the athletic, they came up with this idea for stories about what if, like what if this had happened, you know, many, many years ago, how would all those dominoes fall? So I just wrote a story about what if Mike Krzyzewski had taken the Lakers job. The Lakers offered him their head coaching position in 2004. So this was coming off of uh, the first run that Phil Jackson had there. In fact, I just read Jeff Perlman's book, which I highly recommend to everybody, uh, called Three Ring Circuits about those Laker teams. And so it, it basically run its course and the Kobe Shaq thing was um, uh, they're going their separate ways and the team lets Phil Jackson go. So they're looking for a coach and um, they offered it to coach K. And of course he got approached by the NBA a lot, but um, for a variety of reasons, basically being the Lakers um, coach K was willing to take a look and his agent at the time uh, was a guy named David Falk, who was represented a ton of, NBA players, including Michael Jordan. And, you know, he said to Krzyzewski, like, I think you should take a look at this. And they did. And it basically took a full week for them to. And at the time, the Lakers offered him $40 million, which in 2004 um, was pretty exorbitant. It would have made him the highest paid coach in the NBA. So it was one of those things where he kind of thought, well, maybe I'll think about it. And then as they, the week went on, uh, he got more serious about it. And so they went through everything and the, and the Lakers general manager um, flew there to talk to him and they were above board. And Mitch Kupchak was a GM at the time I talked to. He definitely thought it was a long shot the whole way, but he trusted that they wouldn't have him fly in there to make his pitch. Um, if there wasn't at least some level of legitimate interest. Uh, and frankly, it was a way for him to show their fans, the Laker fans that, Hey, you know, we're swinging for the fences here. Like we went after him and so they weren't like all ego. What if he turns? No, we're going to look bad. Um, and so at the end of that process, he obviously decided to stay and it really came down to happiness. Like David Falk said that to him, he's like, I know it's hard to turn down $40 million, but uh, you'll have more money, but I don't think you'll be as happy. Uh, the dynamics of, of, of coaching in the NBA, like, like at Duke, no one's going to say to him, hey, how come you're playing? How come you're not starting that guy? Or what's going on with this? Or why are you running that offense? Um, when you have a general manager and an owner in an NBA setting, uh, you get those questions. Um, you're living in Los Angeles as opposed to Durham. He had his whole family in Durham, three older daughters. Um, you know, they had sort of becoming and starting to become a grandparent um, and having everybody there locally. Yet, you know, would everybody pick up and move? Maybe, maybe not. So you're losing that piece of it too. So um, look, coaching is really, really hard. Ironically, I literally just hung up with Rick Patino, who's now at Iona and who talks about the great regret that he had leaving Kentucky for the Boston Celtics and his, his answer is looking back. He says, don't mess with happiness. So um, listen, listen, better to have more money than less money. Absolutely. Uh, winning championships, winning at the highest level being, you know, a huge success, however you define that. But um, if you can't be happy in your work life, your personal life, your married life, your family life, um, you're not going to make it as a coach. You're not going to be good at your job. So um, you know, listen, I've known plenty of, of, of very, very wealthy people who are not happy people. I wouldn't trade places with them for all, all the tea in China, you know. Um, you know, look at someone like Greg Marshall, what just happened to him at, at Wichita State. I mean, anyone want to trade places with him right now? And I feel bad saying that because I've always liked him, been good to me, but I, it didn't surprise me any of these revelations. Um, 
So uh, be happy. And, 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 and the reason why it was good for Krzyzewski to go through that process is it allowed him to take inventory and really check in. At the time he was 57 and you, and you kind of hit that midlife thing. What else, is there something else to us? Should I do something different? Um, he had already won a couple of championships at Duke. Like, what do I really want out of life? And then you really, really take stock. So I encourage people in all professions, uh, and I do it all the time, to really take stock about what's important in life before you make these big life decisions. It's interesting because you just talked about Coach Wooden. And in that book, you know, on one hand, he was so regimented and tied to being near his family and very traditional in lots of ways and not wanting to leave to go other places. But it also seemed like at the peak of his success during that run, he was kind of miserable in a lot of ways. And no um, so that I, that idea of happiness is, a, it's a complicated one. It seems like for a lot of these, and even some of the, the coaches you documented in the, in getting to us, it seems like there are always, I asked you in a, previously about this continuum of, you know, misery to joy. And on, and on one hand, you have someone like Dabo Sweeney, who just radiates joy and has this powerful life story to tell and, and it's just a very powerful story of joyfulness and that he finds joy in all he does. And, and, but on the other hand, it's, it's as if other coaches never find that. And so part of that is setting, like you just talked about, but what else are you, have you learned about that, about that search for happiness? Well, it's, it's, it's almost worse than that because it's not even about their inability to find the joy in it, but they don't trust the joy. They avoid the joy. Like I'm, if I'm feeling joy, I'm losing my edge. Um, and it's very, been very interesting talking um, to these guys about life with COVID um, because, you know, the virus hit and the tournament got canceled. And so their whole postseason got canceled. And then they normally they're like out recruiting. You know, there's a couple of really big weekends in April and May they're allowed to be out evaluating prospects and then you take visits and in the summer, everybody's gone and you're chasing and you're flying here and this workout and they weren't allowed to do any of that. And so, you know, almost to a man, Peter, you know, when I talk to these guys, Hey, how are you doing? I've spent more time with my family these last two months than in the previous 20 years. Um, which is kind of sad. Uh, if, if you think about it on one hand, you get my landscaper folks, well, I got a leaf, got a lot of leaves out here in California. Man. Um, but, uh, but, but then it's like when they try to say, you know, I've learned like now I can recruit by zoom. Like I don't have to do all these home visits. I don't have to fly all these places. I can still, I'm still getting players. I'm still getting. So, you know, when this is all over, I'm really going to rethink these things. I'm like bull shit, because as soon as the other guy in your league is out recruiting is out somewhere that you're not, you're going to be like, Oh, I got to go. I got to go there. So, um, but you know, a lot of them have gotten into exercising more and eating better and losing weight and spending time with their families. And, you know, maybe it's, I think it's forced all of us, hasn't it? Um, in so many respects to kind of reset that and, and, and evaluate what's important. So at the very least, they have seen what a normal life can look like. Um, it, and, and along the same lines, um, you know, I often talk to guys, uh, sadly, when they get fired, because they all do. Um, and for those, you know, one of the, the main pieces of advice I give to someone, I try to call, you know, if I have a relationship, especially with someone, they lose their job, I call them just to, you know, reach out, you know, I know how bad they feel. And they believe me, they remember that. Um, 
And then I also say like, well, I'm trying to get this job or that job, but hey, you just got a huge check <laughs> to not work. Like take a year, walk the earth. And then, you know what the number one thing they say to me, Peter? Like, uh, how you doing? I've never been to more practices of other guys in my life because they're not going to sit on their ass. Their wife's kick them out of the house. So what am I going to do? I know this guy, that guy. I'm going to go spend a week here, spend a week there. And they're crazy. So they take notes, you know, for a notebook. Dodger shirt. Um, apologize for the, for the noise. And then, and then a crew, like learning other things. Like Steve Alford told me about this after he got fired by UCLA and how he, he went to see Calipari. And Calipari was doing like a pregame shoot around and he had um, the, the numbers ma with masking tape on their jersey um, of, of the scout team in the pregame shoot around. So his players would remember, like, I, I got 12, I got 24, I got 33. And, and Alford was like, that's exactly right. That's a great, I've never thought of that. Like little things like that. So, you know, it's a shame that coaches don't get to take sabbaticals the way the teachers do, because I think they would really benefit. So just that need to constantly check in. Am I happy? Am I maintaining balance? Am I mentally healthy? Am I physically fit uh, where I need to be? Uh, it, it, it does us, all of us, a lot of good as we advance in our age. Have you noticed anything about self doubt and self belief during these times, Seth? Um, clearly you studied some coaches at their peak, you know, when they're in the middle of winning championships, but I'm even thinking of a couple of the coaches you wrote about coach Harbaugh, coach, coach rivers was recently, you know, went through tough things in the playoffs. What have you learned about how coaches navigate doubt and self-belief amid hard times? Well, again, um, I think that's their comfort zone. I mean, I think they don't, navigate doubt they cultivate it you know they're always on edge. what am i missing what did i forget oh that guy's a better coach than me he's got better players than me i'm gonna get fired that writer hates me because he went to the rival school um that's their comfort zone man so that they're, they're you know coaches are really good uh you know it's interesting. I, I did a um a lengthy profile uh last season on dick vitale who is a coach at heart and coached by profession and just by pure happenstance you know found this incredible life um, and he carried that over to being a dad. He told me, I'm at my best as a parent when my kids are going through something tough. So they're really programmed for how to handle adversity. They create adversity when it's not there. The worst thing for them is when they're, they have a 20 game win streak and, and their kids think they know and everything. They're like, this is the worst thing that could happen to us. We just won 20 games in a row. Like we're going to get our ass kicked tomorrow. Um, so they're, they're really good. Like I, I've, you know, we've all gone through adversity and worry and fear and uh, insecurity about everything that's happening. And I've kind of, you know, reflexively gone to, you know, what my coaching friends and subjects have said, you know, control the controllables. Like I can't control this virus. I can't control this governor, this mayor, this school teacher, this, what can I control? Today is a gift. And I have my family and my job. Like what can I do today at my job to be good at it? So I don't get fired. And then just try to stay in a, in a, in a, in a positive mindset without, you know, don't let it, uh, don't let it get you down. Coaches are really, really good at that stuff. My last question for you, Seth, is we had this NBA draft last night. It's something I always enjoy watching. And what, one of the things I enjoy is you can see literally this moment when a lot of dreams and the hard work, it, it hits right there and you see the emotion pouring out. 
And clearly in the coaches you've documented there, you, you're writing about great coaches with great emotion into what they do. I, I'm interested in asking you about, you had access also to a lot of families when you're, when you're writing about coaches, what, what you are learning about the emotions of families and how families are able to navigate that. You just talked about coaches are built for it, but you know, a, a significant other or children are not always built the way that the coaches, what, what have you learned about the emotions at a family level? Well, I, I, I've often said there's a special place in heaven for coaches' wives because um, they get they get all the worst parts of the job and, and very few of the best parts of it. And they sit there during those games without the ability to call a timeout or make a substitution or call a play. Uh, they're absolutely hopeless and powerless, and it is really, really hard. And, and the same goes, of course, for, for players' families. Uh, and they see the hard work that goes into it. They see the, uh, the pain. Um, and, and all the sorrow and the frustration and the disappointments and everything that goes into it. And they know how much is riding on it. They know that if, you know, that young person at the foul line uh, doesn't make the shot, then their husband's going to get roasted on social media. I mean, social media is a whole nother conversation. It's very, you know, coaches are, um, they're, they're kind of used to the notion, Hey, I'm going to get criticized. I'm going to get shredded. You know, back in the day, it was, you know, sports radio with, with the callers. And now it's, you know, any Yahoo on a, with a, with a phone or a keyboard. Um, and so they can handle it, but, but they know that their families are, are seeing that or reading that. And they try to tell their wives, please stay off social media. Uh, you know, their kids might hear about it going into school. So um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's a tough deal. Uh, you know, I remember, it's funny what you remember, but like Dave Lato making the comment to me at the time he was the coach of Virginia. I remember we were having lunch and he was talking about, you know, there's like an office in my house um, that I use. We call it the pout room because when we lose, I'm just going to go in there and pout. Um, and so that affects the whole family. You know, that affects the whole family. So, and I can tell you that as a journalist and reporter, um, it's much more valuable for me to, I mean, the, the, the best interviews, I think I said this to you last time, the best interviews for my, for my coaching book was the wives. Like they know their man way better than he knows himself. And so to have access to them and their women are so much smart, so much smarter than men. I mean, I've said, and I'm, I'm sure I said this last time I was talking to your students that like, I tell all the basketball coaches, you got to hire a female assistant. Like they're smarter than us. They're tougher than us. Um, and your players will probably relate to them better than, than they will to you. A lot of, a lot of these players sadly come from, from single family households where their dad's not, much of a presence like they they respect their moms now um and so and, and a woman is going to see things that you're just not going to see it's just a different perspective so um yeah so so I, i'm very cognizant and that's why for example peter i don't do like hot seat lists um you know this coach is on the hot seat you know if they don't it may or may not be true. And it's because it's not just that coach, it's his family is going to see that. And his, and if a coach gets fired, well, he got paid all this money. Well, you know, Greg Marshall got $7 million to walk away from Wichita state, but his assistant coach is out of a job. His director of basketball operations is out of a job. Um, Greg's uh, son actually had developed a relationship with, cause he's a young assistant. You know, he reached out to me. Imagine the pain that he's uh, experiencing watching his dad go through this. So I hope all of us have that sort of appreciation uh, and empathy. And, and, and sadly, uh, too many people don't. When we talk about coaches, this guy should get fired. That guy sucks. Like, I hope I never be, if I become that guy, please let me know. 
um, because, uh, you know, we're still people and we're still humans. And I'm not just looking at a coach. I'm seeing a husband. I'm seeing a father. I'm seeing a brother. I'm seeing a son. I'm seeing a boss of a staff. So uh, there's a lot more involved than just the person who's in that chair. <laughs>